Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we're exposing those closed door conversations we have with ourselves. You know the ones, the not super uplifting ones. The ones we tend to start our day with, setting the tone for what's to come. Have you ever questioned why you're harder on yourself than anyone else you know? Why can't you seem to forgive past failures or let yourself have a little slack? Well, me either. That's why we're here. Let's dig into this topic a little to seek out the root. I fully believe that when you face your fears and come head to head with what's challenging you, you have a chance to change your thinking. You're in control even when you feel powerless. Shame is a dangerous game, and the pressure to be perfect is the ultimate recipe for failure. This topic came to me when I flipped on the light first thing in the morning to prepare for the day and immediately started pummeling myself with ridicule. Whoa, what happened to finding gratitude? I don't have accessories with encouraging words to remind me of happier thoughts, primarily because Matt said he's offended when inanimate objects try to tell him how to live. But maybe I need to surround my mirror with remarks like, hey, before you hit the reject button, you have a beautiful spirit and are going places, lady. Why do our minds go there so easily? I'm actually pretty confident in myself. If you've met me, you would most likely say I'm outgoing, positive, and encouraging. As an encouragementologist, those are pretty important traits to possess. But that doesn't mean I don't have a bad day or apparently reoccurring bad mornings. I'm tired of holding myself to such an impossibly high standard. Why do I believe that's necessary or even achievable? I love succeeding and hitting goals, but if the goals are unobtainable, what's the point? You can load your house up with motivational quotes, keep a gratitude journal, and set an alarm for your daily mantras. But when the door is closed, no one is around, and you're alone with your thoughts, what will you choose? Andrea Blundell gets us started with a question and some solutions. Always being hard on yourself? Seven ways to halt the habit. Have a voice inside your head always telling you what you did wrong? Or does every joke you make have you as the punchline? Being hard on yourself isn't funny and learning to stop the habit can be life-changing. Why are you so hard on yourself? That negative voice in your head isn't something you were born with. Somewhere along the way, you learned to think like this. It might have been a parent who always criticized you, a teacher who shamed you, or even a sibling who constantly bullied you. Always being hard on yourself can also be the result of childhood trauma or adverse childhood experiences. One way a child copes is unfortunately to internalize the experiences as their own fault, bringing on a lifetime of shame and low self-esteem until support for traumas are found. 
The sad thing about being so hard on ourselves is that it can be so normal for us we hardly notice. Then one person makes a casual comment about it and it's like a worm in our head. Is it true? Are we always beating ourselves up? First, you can set a timer to go off once an hour for several days and each time check in with your thoughts. Were you actually in the middle of putting yourself down? Or make a list of all the things you think about yourself, being as honest as you can. Do they sound compassionate or are they tough? If you're brave enough, ask friends and family for their honest feedback or even to point out to you gently when you're being hard on yourself. Being hard on yourself can lead to depression and anxiety, and it makes relationships hard. Here are some actionable steps you can take. Number one, record your wins. When we're truly hard on ourselves, our minds glaze over any accomplishments or accolades, or even forget them entirely. Writing them down can feel uncomfortable or be something you try to sabotage, but it's more powerful than it sounds because focusing on what we do, right? It slowly but surely changes our perspective. If you find it too hard to stick to, try piggybacking this new habit on an old habit. For example, make your nightly teeth brushing time the moment you find five things to be proud of from the day. Try saying them out loud to the mirror for an extra boost. Number two, write it out of your head. Our unconscious can be a tricky beast when it wants to be and can be set up to protect us. So just journaling might be helpful, but it's unlikely you will allow yourself to really write out your darkest secrets. Trick your brain into a proper cathartic download by promising yourself to not read what you write and rip up the paper immediately afterward. And then go for it. Write out all your dark, scathing, self-flagellating thoughts, not worrying about penmanship or if you sound like an angry five-year-old. Then enjoy the ripping. Do, however, follow the protocol for not reading and destroying. The last thing you need is to turn this into a yet another way to torture yourself. Number three, win with well-being activities. Always being hard on ourselves is fed by core beliefs that we don't deserve good things or to feel happy. So what better way to counter this than to do things precisely chosen for the way they make you feel good? Well-being activities are the things that make you feel personally elevated and energized. You can't choose them based on what other people do or like, but on you. Do a friend detox. We can hardly feel good about ourselves if we constantly surround ourselves with people who are unkind to us or even bully us. So we might need to re-educate ourselves about what a good friend actually is, then try to get out there and change up our social circle. But before you go and get rid of real friends, note that sometimes we're actually pushing our friends to criticize us without realizing it. Number five. Start self-compassion. 
Forget about self-love, which is a big ask for the best of us. Try self-compassion instead, the new way to raise your self-esteem faster. Write a letter to your best friend. Tell them about what you like about them and what you think about something they're struggling with lately. What advice do you have for them? Now, read the letter aloud, but change the name to you. How strange does it feel? And what would it feel like to talk to yourself like this all the time? Number six, kill the comparison. Comparing ourselves to others is one of the easiest ways to keep ourselves feeling small. Social media doesn't help the habit. Remembering that you're not actually comparing yourself to the other person, but to the perceived idea of them. You really have no idea what their private struggles are. And if you did, you might be glad to be you. Number seven, seek support. Negative thinking can be very addictive. So sometimes we need support to kick the habit. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT, can be a powerful start. It focuses on helping you gain control of your thinking. From there, you might find a therapy that looks at your past helpful, such as one that comes under a psychodynamic umbrella. Again, being hard on yourself doesn't just come from anywhere. It tends to come from tough childhood experiences or parenting that didn't feed our very real need to be loved and supported just as we are. These things can be quite overwhelming to unpack and process. A therapist creates a safe, non-judgmental space to explore and heal. Here's a hard one for me. Something that you might relate to. Aging. Just the word makes you want to groan. The upside? Experience. It's true. Priceless, really. All those experiences you've lived through to tell the tale. And all those opportunities for learning and growth. The downside? Time. Where has it all gone? Oh yeah, all those meaningful experiences we've lived through took time. I look in the mirror today and realize I'm not just having a bad hair day or puffy eyes due to a rip-roaring night out. This is me entering another stage of life and leaving behind the other. Face it and embrace it. Maybe I need a mirror cling that says that. Can anyone else relate? Dr. Susan Krauss Whitborn informs us on 10 ways people are too hard on themselves, found at psychologytoday.com. You would undoubtedly agree with the idea that it's better not to make mistakes or poor decisions that you would later regret. Hmm. It's also likely that you'd prefer that your efforts are always successful in producing the results you desire. Utopia. Perhaps you prepared a meal for your extended family or at least contributed a side dish. To your chagrin, it hasn't come out the way you expected it to. Although you followed the directions to a T, something just plain went wrong. In the days that follow the event, you continue to relive the steps you went through in getting the food to the table and wish you could change whatever went wrong so that the finished product 
was perfect. The desire to be perfect or at least being the best that you can be can become a mental state that extends far and wide throughout your day-to-day experience. You may replace situations at work or with the people you have close to you, such as children, romantic partners, and friends, wishing that things came out differently. Or maybe you look at yourself in the mirror and fuss endlessly over a section of your hair that won't cooperate with the attempts to tame it down. Why is self-criticism so bad for our mental health? According to London South Bank University's Daniel Kolobinski and colleagues, this constant search for personal perfection reflects the quality of self-criticism, an intense and persistent form of inner dialogue that expresses hostility towards the self when one is unable to attain one's own high standards and is a transdiagnostic risk factor for several mental health disorders. In this extreme form, ruminative self-criticism can become more than a way to correct yourself for a mistake or weakness, but can even serve as a form of punishment. The purpose of the British study was to investigate the relationship between self-criticism in its extreme form with symptoms of anxiety and depression. Their study's theoretical basis is called the Self-Regulatory Executive Function Model, or SREF. According to the SREF model, it's not so much the content of what you think when you're being self-critical, but the mechanisms that generate, monitor, and maintain the process of worry and rumination. In other words, your focus on your flaws can morph into the process of thinking there's something wrong with you for blaming yourself for these flaws. To test the SREF model in relation to self-criticism, Kolobinsky devised an experimental procedure that exposed the 30 undergraduate participants serving as the sample, average age of 25 years old, to one of three conditions intended to stimulate self-critical reflections. In this self-criticism induction condition, Participants tried to solve difficult math problems so difficult that they were intended to produce certain failure. However, the experimenters informed the participants prior to the induction that most people could solve these problems. Then, after participants inevitably failed this task, the experimenters asked them to record an audio clip containing a typical self-critical thought. What's the matter with you? Can't you do anything right? The researchers compared the responses of the experimental to two control groups, whom received the math task but didn't read self-critical statements. The key measure for this comparison was a scale assessing psychological distress. As predicted, the students in the math failure self-criticism experimental group had the highest distress scores compared to controls. The research team then debriefed the participants about the study's actual purpose and measured their distress once again. This final set of findings showed that participants in the failure condition not only had higher distress overall right after completing the math problems, but that even after the debriefing, they continued to feel distraught about their performance. They knew the experimental situation was rigged, but the highly self-critical couldn't get their minds off their perceived poor performance. 
Turning now to the self-critical rumination scale itself, you can test yourself on the following items. Grab a pen and paper. Rate yourself on each using a one as do not agree and a four as strongly agree. So it's one to four on the scale. Number one, I find it hard to focus on anything else when I think about my past mistakes and failures. Number two, I motivate myself to try harder by dwelling on stupid things I did in the past. Number three, I need to repeatedly think about things that I got wrong in order to avoid making mistakes in the future. Number four, dwelling on my past mistakes represents a weakness of character. Number five, repeatedly reviewing how I should have acted differently in the past shows that I care about the outcome. Number six, I will get depressed if I don't stop reviewing my self-critical thoughts. Number seven, not spending sufficient time thinking about past mistakes and failures will make me arrogant. Number eight, having self-critical thoughts means that I'm a weak person. Number nine, I have a hard time distancing myself from thoughts about not being good enough. Number 10. I tend to treat thoughts about my worth as facts. I think of them, they must be true. These 10 items divide into two subscales. Negative rumination subscale items are 1, 4, 6, 8, 9, and 10, all reflecting ways that thinking about your mistakes can make you feel worse about yourselves. The so-called positive subscale items, which include 2, 3, 5, and 7, aren't considered positive because they're healthy, but because they provide justifications for why individuals might engage in self-critical rumination. The total scores on the negative items range from 6 to 24, with an average of 4.3 or slightly over 2.3 per item. Most people scored between 9 and 19. On the positive scale, the scores range from 4 to 16. With the average of 2.1, a high score would be considered approximately 11, or just above 3 per item. By rating yourself, you can now understand how being too hard on yourself can take a variety of specific forms. Perhaps you are higher on the positive than the negative. This might indicate that you think it's a good idea to relive your least successful moments. This tendency can be as detrimental as out and out giving engaging in a negative type of rumination. What's more? you can see that the content of such self-tormenting thoughts is bad enough. However, the fact that you keep activating them can become even more of a threat to your well-being. 
you jump to the conclusion that your highly self-critical thoughts make you even more flawed than you first imagined, it's worth considering an antidote. As the UK authors point out, treatment involving metacognitive therapy in which you address the thought process rather than the thought content can be highly effective for a range of disorders and behaviors, including not only depression and anxiety, but also problem drinking, problem gambling, nicotine use, and even procrastination. In this form of therapy, you can learn how to treat your thoughts in an objective fashion and cautiously perceive them as being separate from yourself as the observer of the thoughts. You can adopt, as the authors go on to note, a self-distanced rather than self-immersed perspective, which allows you to stand back and challenge their veracity. Armed with the knowledge that you don't have to accept the ruminative thought process you engage in, but can study those thoughts in a rational manner, you can then experiment with silencing them, or at least putting them aside and removing them from your conscious awareness. When they come back, you can label them as ruminative metacognitions and go back through the questioning process once again. Just the expression, being hard on yourself, should contain its own inner warning about the unproductive nature of overly critical thoughts. Understanding that they're in fact thoughts and not reality can help you lead a more reasonable and self-accepting sense of your own self-worth. Words are so important. Even passive words we say and hear can take root and be hard to pluck out when exposed, especially when you give them energy unconsciously. We just talked about the art of being self-aware and how important the skill is for change. You have to take charge and stop the obsessive thinking. No more. Once the wheels stop, it's time to turn them in a new direction reframing the negative into a positive. Start with one thing, one small thing that you can say to redirect your mind and your focus. It's important, not just a kitschy phrase for a throw pillow, but important skill for your mental health. Kristen Canning helps us understand that shame is detrimental to mental and physical health. Experts say, and women tend to feel it more. When Jennifer Pasloff was eight years old, she got into a fight with her dad over smoking. He'd promised to quit his four-pack-a-day habit, but wasn't following through. She flushed a bunch of his menthol cools down the toilet. I told him he always broke promises, and I said, I hate you. The way young kids do in those situations, said Pasloff. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal, but it ended up being the last thing I said to him. He died from a Widowmaker heart attack shortly after at just 38. I thought I had caused the stress that killed him. I was so ashamed that I wouldn't allow myself to grieve. I thought I didn't deserve to be a person. I developed anorexia as I tried to fade away. Pasloff eventually recovered from her eating disorder, but she still carried shame from the experience and her father's death, which tanked her confidence in other aspects of her life. I lied all the time, saying I wasn't sad about my dad or that I was auditioning for acting roles when, really, I was only working at a restaurant, 
I refused to admit I had a hearing disability. Paslov had had enough and began writing in an effort to heal. To her surprise, her brutally honest essays were met with support online. When I saw how sharing helped people, I decided I was done hiding. She's now a yoga teacher and the author of On Being Human, a memoir of waking up, living real, and listening hard, and always leads shame loss workshops on self-acceptance. Being honest and vulnerable in spite of shame, that's my superpower, she says. Zooming out, shame is particularly difficult to overcome because it causes people to feel as if they're flawed at the core. This comes from Dr. June Tangney, a professor of psychology at George Mason University and the author of Shame and Guilt, Emotions and Social Behavior. With guilt, you might think, I've done something bad, but I'm not a bad person, and that can actually encourage healthy change. With shame, you think I'm bad. Tainted character feels a lot harder, if not impossible, to change, so it causes people to isolate and withdraw. Women and younger people are the most likely to struggle with this emotion. And that has very real consequences. Feeling a lot of shame on a day-to-day basis is associated with a higher likelihood of developing anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, and eating disorders. It can also lead to very real health problems beyond mental well-being and disconnection. For example, the shame people feel about contracting herpes, which can range from thoughts like my life is over and no one will ever love me again, to severe depression and suicidal ideation. It can cause so much stress that it actually leads to more intense and frequent outbreaks of what is typically a pretty harmless skin condition that one out of every six people have per a study in the Journal of Health Psychology. All those thoughts also keep herpy-positive people from being honest with new partners, making it more likely to spread. No surprise that shame permeates doctors, the therapist's office as well, leading patients to withhold information like how often do you drink or exercise? Because of its link to so many serious mental and physical health issues, shame is one of the biggest health hurdles we're all up against. The good news is, is that while you can't escape shame, it's a universal human emotion, you can learn to manage it and be more resilient. Challenge your shame by asking yourself these questions. When you're feeling ashamed of something, answer these questions honestly. Was this a mistake or something I do all the time? Is this really something I should feel bad about? Are my current emotions about this productive? How would I respond to a friend who is dealing with this? Am I letting myself feel bad for not meeting a societal standard? Your answers can help you see where you're stuck and how to pull yourself out of it. Open up about what you're going through. Shame convinces people that they're better off keeping it a secret, but the only way to heal shame is to expose it and connect with others so you feel less alone. 
That doesn't mean that you have to blast it from social media rooftops if that's not your style. Find a safe person you can talk to about it, whether that's a friend, family member, partner, or therapist, and be specific. When you hear yourself say it out loud, you sort of realize that what you're saying isn't that big of a deal. Feel you can't open up to those around you? Look for group therapy or support groups near you or online. You can find your people if you let go of expectations of what that's supposed to look like. And if speaking your truth to anyone sounds horrifying, remember, we fall in love with people when they're the most vulnerable and human. Pretend you don't care, for real. One of the best tools therapists have for combating shame is opposite actions. Basically, it means fake it till you make it, and it actually works. If you're ashamed about, say, your body hair and not being perfectly waxed at all times, act as if you're not and don't hide your stubble. Over time, this tricks your mind into thinking you really are unbothered. Plus, you get a little exposure therapy for your shame trigger. When people don't react in the harsh way you imagine them to do, you learn to ease up. Make self-compassion an everyday practice. Pasloff calls the voice of shame your inner a-hole. It can pop up at any moment, so battling shame has to be a regular thing. A few methods she teaches are start each day with a self-love meditation. Touch a part of your body that you're feeling shame toward and say, I love you and I'm listening, while you practice deep breathing. When you're done, pick a mantra for the day and preface it with, May I remember. You might say, may I remember that I am enough. That phrasing puts the power back in your hands. It's saying you've always been enough and you know it, you just forgot and need to be reminded. She also suggests carrying an off-the-hook notebook. Throughout the day, write down anything you feel shame about so it's off your chest and you can move on. Another powerful exercise Pin yourself a letter from the perspective of someone who loves you about how they see you. When people read these, they realize this person I respect sees me this way and I'm not living like that's who I am. You deserve to. You get to have happiness. Sometimes when we keep these narratives in the privacy of our own brains, we tend to over-dramatize and exaggerate any and all issues. Finding someone safe to share with means we get these ideas out of our heads by verbalizing them. Have you ever read a text or an email from someone and immediately you add a bit of snark or sarcasm? Was the tone accurate? This is why sharing your personal narrative is important. How are you expressing yourself when no one else hears you? It's also important to receive honest and supportive feedback. This is why you want to choose your accountability partner wisely. Responses like, you ding dong, that's just silly, is not helpful. Find someone who will first listen without judgment and then with kindness respond thoughtfully. Oh, and hey, When the same is asked of you, respond in kind. 
Karen Beattie sets us up with four destructive traits of perfectionism from Dr. Brene Brown, found at thegrowthfaculty.com. The author spells out the destructive nature of perfectionism in her bestseller, The Gifts of Imperfection. Let go of who you think you're supposed to be and embrace who you are and dare to lead, an ideal read for those wanting to be good leaders. So here's her definition of perfectionism. Perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of blame, judgment, and shame. Perfectionism is an unattainable goal. It's more about perception than internal motivation. And there's no way to control perception no matter how much time and energy is spent trying. Perfectionism is addictive because when we invariably do experience shame, judgment, and blame, we often believe it's because we weren't perfect enough. Rather than questioning the faulty logic of perfectionism, we become even more entrenched in our own quest to look and do everything just right. Perfectionism actually sets us up to feel shame, judgment, and blame, which then leads to more shame, judgment, and blame. It's my fault. I'm feeling this way because I'm not good enough. And here's her take on what perfectionism is not. It's not striving for excellence. It's not about healthy achievement and growth. Perfectionism is a defensive move. It's not the self-protection we think it is. It's a 20-ton shield we lug around, thinking it will protect us when in fact it's the thing that's really preventing us from being seen. Perfectionism is not self-improvement. Perfection is at its core about trying to earn approval. Early praise for achievement and performance has become a dangerous and debilitating belief system. I am what I accomplish, and how well I accomplish it, please perform perfect prove. Perfectionism is not the key to success. In fact, research shows that perfectionism hampers achievement and is correlated with depression, anxiety, addiction, and life paralysis, plus missed opportunities. The fear of failing, making mistakes, not meeting people's expectations, and being criticized keeps us outside the arena where healthy competition and striving unfolds. Lastly, perfectionism is not the way to avoid shame. Perfectionism is a function of shame. I'm going to let her share a little bit more with you. Brene is just such a wonderful speaker. And if you haven't listened to her books, I recommend Audible for that because you actually get to hear her and she's very humorous. I would like her to talk us out with six types of people who do not deserve to hear your shame story. In her second book, The Gifts of Imperfection, Brene says, we need to look before we take the vulnerability leap and choose carefully who we open up to. 
So I love in Gifts of Imperfection where you say, we share a shame story with the wrong person. They can easily become one more piece of flying debris, so well said, in an already dangerous storm. We want solid connection in a situation like this, something akin to a sturdy tree firmly planted in the ground. We definitely want to avoid the following. The friend who hears the story and actually feels shame for you, she gasps and confirms how horrified you should be, then there's awkward silence. Oh, yeah. Then you have to make her feel better. Oh, yeah. yeah. Have you ever had that happen? Oh, my goodness. Where you're like, yeah. Oh, so God. now you have to now put yeah. your shingle out for that person. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm still in shame and I'm one less friend down. I'm like, and you're gone. <laughs> The friend who responds with sympathy, I feel so sorry for you rather than empathy. I get it, I feel with you, and I've been there. If you want to see a shame cyclone turn deadly, throw one of these at it. Oh, you poor thing. Yes. Or the incredibly passive-aggressive southern version of sympathy. I love this. Bless your heart. Yes. That just make, that gives me the shivers when you say that. That's yes. like, I'm fixing to tear you down and God is on my side. Yeah. It is the worst. We've all been there. The friend who needs you to be the pillar of worthiness and authenticity, she can't help because she's too disappointed in your imperfections because you've let her down. Yes. Painful. The friend who is so uncomfortable with vulnerability that she scolds, how did you let this happen? The friend who is all about making it better and out of her own discomfort refuses to acknowledge that you can actually be crazy and make terrible choices. You're exaggerating, the person says. It wasn't that bad. Right. Yes. And the friend who confuses connection with the opportunity to one-up you. Well, that's nothing. Listen to what happened to me. So when you open yourself up and you're vulnerable enough to share something that has shamed you, what are you really looking for? I'm looking for... I'm looking for the person who loves me, not despite my vulnerability and imperfection, but because of it. I'm looking for what I call my move-the-body friends. I'm looking for the folks who are gonna show up and wade through the deep with me. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's a myth that you should have more than one or two of those. You know, the TV commercials that show 15 of us laughing and doing that kind of stuff, uh-uh. Uh -uh. You got one person in your life who you can call and say, I just told a bold-faced lie to someone I care about and I have no way to get out of it and I'm in a shame yeah. storm of epic proportion. You have one person that look at you and say, all right, let's do this thing. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. I've done it. Let's talk it through. You are so lucky. And if you have two or three, that's forget it. it. That, forget Lottery. it. Lottery. Lottery. Yeah. And you know what we, what we all do, myself included, is we steamroll over those people to get the attention and appreciation of the people who will never show up for us like that. Wow. So like, you know, you may be my best friend and you might be all around me all the time, but those folks, those women at the mall that mm -hmm. I don't know, mm -hmm. they're the ones I'm really worried about. Yeah. Trying to please or prove right. yourself to them. And you say, of course, we're all capable of being these friends. Yes. But especially if someone tells us a story that gets right up in our own shame, that's when, you're, that's when it hits the nerve, right? We're human, imperfect, and vulnerable. Yeah. Yes. It's hard to practice compassion when we're struggling with our own authenticity or when our own worthiness is off balance. And you know what means the most to me? What means the most to me is if I go to someone with my shame story, and my whole mantra is, you share with people who've earned the right to hear your story. Damn, that is good. Right? Doggone it, that's like, so You good. have to earn the right to hear my story. It's an honor to hold space for me when I'm in shame. Like, and so I want to share. And if I share oh, with someone- Oh, we need to just take yeah. pause with that for a moment. Okay. You sh because this is how people get so messed up and violated 
they, it's like the Bible says, casting your pearls before swine. It's you true. Know, offering yourself up to people who don't deserve to have that offering. That's right. And you have to think long and hard about who has earned the right to hear the story and with whom am I in a relationship that can bear the weight of the story? Wow, that is, that is powerful. And if I go to someone and I share it and they come back with one of those bad, not, not helpful, not empathic answers, mm -hmm. and then a week later, or a day later, an hour later, they call and say, I didn't show up for you. You were so much in my stuff. I couldn't, I couldn't be with you in that. That means even more to me. We're not gonna do empathy perfectly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not gonna have the right response every time. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. It's, it's so overwhelmingly powerful. I have to take a break. I have to just take a break right now. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, be on the ready to bow out of the shame game by ceasing your participation and reframing the negative narrative you've grown accustomed to. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone's through until the past was clear.